Welcome to America's Top Rebbitsons. May this class be for Rafua Shalema, for Eliezer Raphael Leib Benemuna, and Ahuva Bat Saralea. Please click on the subscribe button to subscribe to us on the America's Top Rebbitsons YouTube page, or click follow to follow us on your podcasting app so that you are the first to know when an inspiring new episode is posted. I'm so happy to have on today's show, Rebbitsen Leah Wilhelm. Rebbitsen Leah is a Chabad emissary at the Rohr Chabad Center at the University of Colorado in Boulder, Colorado. She helps to provide religious, educational, social, and recreational Jewish programming for the community of Jewish students at the university. I love that you work with college students because I feel like they're in such a stage of their lives where you can really have a tremendously positive effect on them. So thank you so much for being here. Please tell us more about yourself and what you do. So yes, that is, you hit the nail on the head about working with college students who are very impressionable. They're at a stage in their life where they are open to learning new things. And um, that is primarily what I do. I also run a mikvah here, and that's something I'm proud of. I joke that it's my night job, um, right. <laughs> but it, yeah, it, it's definitely something that encompasses a lot of my life. And, uh, but as far as the Chabad Student Center at CU, then there are many different aspects involved. You know, we like to talk about the teaching and the programming, but it takes a lot of, you know, behind the scenes work that's not all glory to be able to do the teaching and the learning and the Yom Tov. So um, there's definitely a lot of cooking involved and, there's social media and graphic design and um, all the background know, stuff, all, all the background the, stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. All of that too. And then of course I'm a mom <laughs> and that's, that's what fills me with a lot of joy. So I'm blessed to have six children and oh, that's what I do. I'm a mommy. <laughs> it's beautiful. You have, you have a lot of full-time jobs. Definitely. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, today, today is going to be great because today we're going to talk about one of my favorite topics. I know it's one of yours too. It's about women's Torah learning and specifically Hasidic teachings and how they impact our day-to-day life, our physical, mental, and emotional and spiritual well-being and our choices as well. And this is going to go deep. So let's dive right in. Um, can you please share with us some key Hasidic teachings uh, one at a time so that we can fully delve into each one of them and see how they can have a lasting positive effect on us if we can apply them in our lives? Okay. Um, so definitely, I think one favorite teaching that I go back to over and over again, and I, I like to watch a video of the Lubavitcher Rebbe speaking about this and um, yeah, anytime I need a dose of inspiration for what I do, then I turn to this. And that's a teaching of Miriam Batbilga. So she was from a family of Kohanim and what in the, in the Gemara and the Talmud when it talks about her, says so she was such a disgrace to her family that her family's ring, Kohanim, each family had a ring that they used for um, fixing the animal and in the service in the Beit HaMikdash and her family's ring was closed down um, wow. because of her. So, so what did she do that was so scandalous? You know, we've had a lot of people that make mistakes. So Miriam, um, it was during a time of the Greeks and their war with the Jewish people in Israel. And she renounced her faith, which is a pretty big step in itself. And then she married out, which also is a big 
uh, step and leaving Judaism, if you want to say. And this was no ordinary Greek. He was an officer in the Greek army that was um, attacking the Jewish people. Wow. <laughs> and then when the Greeks, you know, in the story of Hanukkah, we always talk about it, how the Greeks went into the holy temple and defiled the temple and, you know, by placing very profane animal on the Mizbeach, on the altar. She was there with them. So we can see, um, I guess you can say how far she went in, in her rebellion against her upbringing. So she goes into the Beit HaMikdash with them. And then when she comes to the Mizbeach, she takes off her shoe and she slapped it on the Mizbeach. And she said, Lucas, Lucas, fox, fox. She called Hashem a fox. She said, why are you consuming the sacrifices of the Jewish people and not helping them in their time of need? So this is a story that's recounted in the Gemara. And, you know, there are so many lessons we can learn. The Rebbe does touch upon the fact that her actions mattered to Hashem, that you know, even someone who was so far, and yet the way she acted towards a Mizbeach mattered. But um, what the Rebbe talks about, and the Rebbe cries when he says this, is that someone who was so far, and like, you know, he goes through again the steps, renounced her faith, married a Greek officer, went into the Beis HaMikdash. And what is it that she says when she's slapping the Mizbeach? She's pained by the fact that Hashem isn't taking care of her brethren in their time of need. Wow. So, and then the rabbi just begs that that's how we should see our fellow Jews. And when we meet someone and no matter what they look like externally, um, to recognize what's in there and that, and the rabbi says it's on us and the responsibility is on us to see the good in them and to bring it out. So um, this is a teaching that I, I, I really live with and um, the people I encounter are, they're not Miriam, but Bill goes <laughs> and, but still sometimes they can seem distant. And I, I feel like I need to be reminded time and again about how, how precious their neshama is. Right. Each and every Nishama is so, so precious to Hashem. That's a very, very good point. Yes. It's so I've never heard the story of Miriam Babilgo before. It's fascinating to me. Wow. And, and it's amazing. Um, I remember my father, blessed memory, he would be amazed by this talk of the Rebbe and say, like, only the Lubavitch Rebbe can take Miriam Babilgo and find the beauty and her actions and her words, because her story was sitting there in Gemara and she was, she was looked down upon as yeah. just such a disgrace to the Jewish people, to her family. And then came the Lubavitch and found something beautiful about her. This is amazing. And so, okay, so let's talk about applying this teaching to our lives. So we, so when we encounter anybody, just like you said, no matter what they look like, no matter what their religious affiliation, or maybe they have no religious affiliation at all, maybe they're atheist, it could be, you know, we always have to try to find that spark of Hashem in them because they're Jews and they were created by Hashem and seeing the good in them, even if they're the most, the meanest people, they have such a bad attitude. They say bad things, they wear whatever, you know, any, like any negativity about them, we have to look deeper into them and to really, really find the good in them and to help them bring that out. 
Yeah. And, and you know what? I think that we a lot of times talk about people that are distant from Judaism and no matter what they look like and you see them on the street and what their background is or what they're engaged in. But I think the same lesson goes for people who maybe look and act observant and they can have um, some things about them that are very ugly. True. And, and that's what we can see. And we have to be reminded to see see the beauty. Wow. Remind you to see the beauty, the beauty in each individual person. That's a really powerful lesson because that can really change our relationships. That could really transform, transform our relationships all around us, family, friends, coworkers, just even people that we encounter on the street. It's a really powerful teaching. Thank you. Yeah. So that's definitely something that we just kind of have to keep in our back pockets. I think and I, I feel like I need to be reminded about how to look at others. Very nice. Okay. Um, is there another Hasidic teaching that you can share with us? So another one, even though I, I feel like most of the Hasidic philosophy that I study is the talks of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And I especially spend time now every week doing, uh, learning two or three talks of the Rebbe in the original, in and there's Project Lakotei Sichos that divided the Rebbe Sichas kind of into a set learning system because as motivated and inspired as I was to study it, you know, it's hard to be committed in a regular routine way. Yeah. And this project has definitely um, kind of changed the way I study. And so I'd say most of the teachings now that I live with are the ones I'm learning there. And the, even though there are so many favorites, what I find is whatever I learn that week ends up being my favorite for the week. And it's something that I needed to hear at that moment. I love it. So this week, you know, I, I just learned this. I learned just two days ago and I learned it with a friend in her car right after dropping my kids off at school. We didn't have a lot of time. And you know, sometimes we'll meet at different spots and you know, I didn't have a lot of time. She said, just come into my car. So after I dropped the kids off, I hopped into her car and we took out our sperm and we learned. And then, you know, that little bit of time, just it's transformative. Yes. Um, so the teaching from this week is connected to the Pirkei Avot, chapter five, Parakei. And we're taught um, about the 10 things that were created on Arab Shabbat. And the last one, to some say that um, Mazikin, the, the Shadim, the devils, and and also a tong. The first metal tong says one pair of tongs has to be made with another pair of tongs. Each pair, so who made the original pair of tongs? It was Hashem that created an Arab Shabbos. Right before Shabbat comes in. And it and that alone, I feel like I've studied that Mishnah, and then you just kind of gloss over it. It just seems like a basic Mishnah. And then the Rebbe gives us such a beautiful teaching on this line about these tongs and you know, a pair of tongs making another pair of tongs. So if you think about the original pair of tongs, it seems like there isn't any innate purpose in it. It was just there to enable us to create the next pair of tongs. And then once we have the second pair of tongs, the first one, you know, we can get rid of it and, and 
doesn't seem to have much value. And it's telling us that Hashem created this pair of tongs right before Shabbos, which is such a spiritual time. And that's teaching us that this first pair of tongs, even though logically in the normal order of the world doesn't have that much innate value, but if we look at it from Hashem's perspective, then it does, and it's very precious. So well, what does that teach us? You know, like tongs, talking all about tongs. So there's a concept of heksher mitzvah, of preparing to do a mitzvah. So uh, the example, let's say, that it gives in the Sikha, I believe it's from Mishnah or Talmud, and it talks about a knife that's used to perform a bris milah. So bris milah is a huge mitzvah, but how do you perform a bris milah? You say with a knife, but you can't just hold a blade. You need, the blade needs a wooden handle. And where do you get that wooden handle? You have to cut from a tree. So cutting from a tree is already heksher mitzvah. It's that preparation for a mitzvah. And each mitzvah that we do, we can think about how many steps are involved in preparing to do the mitzvah. And oftentimes, I don't, I'm sure you can relate to this, that we don't place that much value on the heksher mitzvah, on the steps leading up to the mitzvah. We say, okay, the mitzvah is incredible. The mitzvah transforms the world. And really, according to the regular order of the world, that's how it is. It's a mitzvah that imbue physical things with spirituality. It's the mitzvahs that transform us, that transform the world. And the heksher mitzvah we can think of as like, not having that much innate value, but this pair of tongs created by Hashem is here to teach us that Heksher Mitzvah has value, the steps involved. Um, and again, I think we each can take our own personal lessons, but I can tell you that as a campus Chabad Rebetzin, like I told you, it's not all glory. So yes, my husband is on a birthright trip now with 70 students and um, you know, that's kind of what we tend to want to say we do. Oh, what do I do? Oh, I take 70 students to Israel. Um, but getting those 70 students to come to Israel is a big process. Yes. And lots of that process involves, I'll be honest, cooking. And, <laughs> you know, I, I spend a lot of time in the kitchen cooking for these kids Yes. and preparing Shabbos meals and Seder and those are the steps that allowed them to come through and have this beautiful spiritual experience of being in Israel. So, um, I, you know, that's something that I think about is trying to have the joy in that Heksher mitzvah. Wow. So, so the Heksher mitzvah, if I'm understanding correctly, is a pre preparation to do an actual mitzvah. Like yes. when you, when you were cooking in the kitchen, like your goal was to get kids to Israel. And so that's, it's really indirect, but you were cooking for them for Shabbos. You were getting to know them. You were allowing them to get to know you and your husband to, to welcome them into the world of Judaism. You know, some of them might not have had Shabbat before or may not have had pleasant experiences associated with Shabbat. So you were really trying to provide that environment for them and a love for Yiddishkeit and kind of to just get them to go to Israel to learn even more, to get closer to Hashem and get closer to Yiddishkeit. And you did this oh. through the preparation. Yes and no, because I won't say that my goal is to get them to go to Israel or to get them to go to yeshiva. My goal is really more what you said, they should have a love for Yiddishkeit. Yes. So yes. Um, that is, but each time I prepare 
that even hosting a Shabbat dinner, there's a lot of Heksher mitzvah involved yes. in having students sit around a Shabbos meal. Um, I sure. think also as parents and especially as mothers, there's a lot we do that's, you know, kind of nitty gritty, but it's, yes. and, and the Rebbe says in, the, in, in that talk and that Sifa, even like Heksher, Heksher mitzvah has been. <laughs> so, there are so many steps and he gives the, the story of Rebbe Chia. Have you heard the story of Rebbe Chia? Um, no. He was one that, uh, and I grew up with this as a, um, in my childhood, we had a, a picture book about this story and it's amazing how ingrained it is in my mind. And I can, I can see those pictures to this day because I heard the story of Rebbe Chia who went and he was planting flax and they said, you know, what are you doing? I'm planting flax. And they were puzzled as to why this great sage was spending all his time planting flax. And when it grew, he, um, he wove it into nets. And then he set the nets as traps and he trapped deer. And then when he trapped the deer, um, he, shot, he would have them shafted, slaughtered, and he gave the meat to the poor. And then he used the hide to make parchment. And then on the parchment, he wrote the five books of Torah and he wrote um, some of the, the initial books of the Mishnah. And then he traveled to the more remote towns in Israel where they didn't have schools and teachers. And he would give each child one manuscript and he would teach one child the book of Bereshit, another child the book of Shemot. And then after he left, he would say, now you teach your friends what I taught you. And Rabbi Chia is credited with saving Torah and with educating a whole new generation where Torah would have been lost. Only the, you want to say the urban areas and the, the people who are privileged to be able to afford yeshiva were learned. And Rabbi Chia was one who educated an entire generation. Wow. And the Talmud goes to great lengths to talk about the, the planting the flax and making the nets and, and, setting a trap. So that's Heksher Mitzvah. And, um, you know, Rabbi Chia valued it because we say to an infinite God, it doesn't matter if I'm teaching a book of Torah or if I'm planting flax in order to do this. You know, Tashem, there's value in each of it. It's, you know, in a, in a limited measured way, then we start measuring what has more value or not. But to an infinite God, it all has value. So um, yeah, that's something I really am going to be, I, I've been thinking a lot about this week about having, you know, placing value and appreciating the, the Heksher Mitzvah. This is fascinating. I love it. You know, this is the first time honestly I'm hearing about the concept of Heksher Mitzvah and I'm just, I'm find, finding it fascinating because so many things that we do, we don't even realize it and they're Heksher Mitzvah. You know, like in this area that you just saw planting flax, like, okay, it's planting flax, like, okay, no problem. But it really was a Heksha mitzvah. So they trapped the deer and then they use the skin for the parchment and so on, you know, to teach Torah. So, so many things that we do in our lives, although we don't realize it, are Heksha mitzvah. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that you talk about being conscious, conscious in all we do. Yes. I think that when we're conscious, we realize how much value there is to so many of the things we do. Wow, that's really eye-opening, actually. Really, really eye-opening. <laughs> um, I love this. Could you could you give us one more, one more of these things that you're learning? This is great. 
one more teaching. So yes. one more teaching is not from the Rebbe Sifas. It's from Tanya. And I'm sure you've heard about the book of Tanya. Yes. And um, I studied Tanya since I was a child, basically. Um, but when I studied the Tanya in order to teach it to the college students, I used Rabbi Shays Taub's curriculum. And it was very eye-opening to see that the lessons that I had learned all of a sudden to hear language and how it's so practical and applicable. And um, that's what I think a lot is. And I think a lot of that comes also with growth and maturity that I think a lot of the Torah that I studied in my younger years um, just seemed more abstract. And then as we, as we mature, we start to realize like, oh, this is relevant in my life. <laughs> you know, it's not just a sweet story or a profound idea. This is life-changing idea. So a concept from Tanya that I really, really um, just use in a lot of my personal, I'd say this isn't in connection with others. This is like kind of very personal avoda way of, of um, you know, being, you said how it impacts our, our mental health and our physical health is the concept, how the Tanya addresses guilt, guilt and shame. Um, so Jewish guilt, and we have it, and we're gonna have it. And I don't know, officially mothers, we have our extra doses. So we're we're living with all of this guilt, you know, and how, how do we address it? So Tanya tells us that in the middle of the day, when a feeling of guilt creeps up, then we can think like, wow, look at me, like I'm so holy. I'm so like that this is bothering me in the middle of the day. It's really annoying at me, you know, what I that I forgot to daven yesterday or, you know, and Tanya tells us, no, that's not coming from a spiritual place because in the middle of the day, that feeling of guilt is not going to propel us to greater spiritual heights. All it's going to do is cause us to feel bad. And when we feel bad, we're in a compromised state. And when we're in a compromised state, then we're, it's very easy for us to fall and, and to do things that we shouldn't do. So when a feeling of guilt comes in and, uh, and this is not just, of course, during davening and learning, we're like, oh yeah, maybe that's distracting me from learning. But so no, during whatever we're doing, that feeling of guilt comes, then we tell it like, I'll, I'll talk to you later, you know, put it aside and we set an appointment. We have a set time to address it. When do we address it? We address it at night when we're making a cheshvon and nefesh, when we're kind of going through the day and making a mental calculation. But then here's the next part that I love so much. What do we do when we sit down at that appointment to think about that feeling of guilt? So I know just from teaching this over and over again, when I ask a question and uh, I say, you know, so what should we do? And everyone says, okay, you know, start thinking about what you did and all the details and who you wronged and why you wrong. And the thing is, if we start doing that, then we start to justify ourselves. We find, or we start to get angry at the other person. Let's say, you know, we're thinking, we're feeling guilty about, I'm feeling guilty about the way I spoke to my husband. Then right away, I'm going to say, but you know, he kind of had it coming with the way he arrived late or, you know, um, and so it doesn't get us anywhere. All we're supposed to think about during that appointment is think about the greatness of Hashem. And 
when we sit down to our appointment and think about the greatness of Hashem and Hashem's kindness to us, then we say, you know, I really could do better. And Hashem owes it. I owe it to Hashem and Hashem deserves better from me. And that's how we deal. You know, that's what we do at our appointment so that the next day we're inspired to do better. And uh, that's how we deal with guilt. And guilt is over what we've done. And shame is over who we are. And when we uh, start to feel a feeling of shame over who we are, we're supposed to shut it down immediately. And there is no, no appointment even. It has no place in Judaism and no place in our life. That's what Tanya says, no place for shame. So, you know, those, those concepts about guilt and shame that I feel like has really transformed the way I deal with you know, feelings of guilt and shame. And our relationship between us and Hashem is a paradigm for human relationships between husband and wife. And um, I've applied it in that sense many, many times. And yeah, it, you, it's definitely life-changing. Can you give an example of how you've applied it? Um, maybe the guilt. Uh, yeah, let, let's say that example that I spoke, I said something really rude to my husband, then I, I think we all know sometimes we do something wrong. We start obsessing over it. And, and if I start obsessing over that, or a lot of times it's feelings of guilt over um, what I've done to the people I love most. So my husband or my kids, now I definitely will feel very guilty over what I said or didn't say, or, or what I should have done and didn't do. Um, and then, yeah, if I, if I let it air, you know, it, it's feelings inside of me. It just pulls me down and it drags me down and doesn't lead to anything positive. So, um, yeah, I definitely tried to engage then in, you know, when it's time to, you know, to put it aside and when it's time to just to think about um, their goodness, you know, my spouse, my children, and how much I love them and that I, I want to try harder. I want to do better. See, that is very inspirational because I think a lot of people, when they feel guilt, guilt and shame, it brings them down and they just get stuck there. They just get stuck with guilt upon guilt, shame upon shame. And like, then they feel trapped, almost paralyzed, you know, so to speak, where they can't do anything, where they can't improve themselves. And then, then, then the situation just gets worse from there. But I really like what you said about doing a hash bone on that, that I, that I do sometimes also at, at night where we kind of go over or do a mental checklist um, in our head of how our day went, all the things that we did well, all the things that maybe we didn't get to and all the things that kind of didn't go as, as planned. And sometimes there's guilt and shame in, in that category of the things that didn't go as planned and just to sit with it. And I really like that, that, that mindset that you suggested about thinking about the greatness of Hashem and his kindness and all that he gives to us. And like we were talking about earlier, looking at people in our lives from a positive point of view, you know, looking at their good qualities and their good attributes and kind of trying to bring that out in our minds when we think of them. And that way then, yes, the next day when, when we wake up and, you know, we are, we reapproach our kids and our husbands and start the day with them, we can come at it from a positive point of view from, you know, yesterday didn't go as planned, but I'm going to do better. I'm not going to get stuck in that. I'm going to do better. I'm going to speak nicely. I'm going to be kinder, you know, so that we can grow and improve. It's a very, very positive and powerful point of view. 
Yeah. No, we, we should start the new date inspired and motivated and yes. not rejected. Yes. Um, so, you know, I, I, I know that you shared um, the story about, you know, about the guilt and the shame and how you applied it, you know, to your life about, you know, in terms of your husband and your kids. But I was wondering if maybe you could share with us maybe another anecdote or two, either about yourself or maybe about somebody that you know who has applied any, any of the Hasidic teachings that we talked about in their lives. I just kind of like want to paint a picture for everybody about how these ancient Torah teachings are still so relevant in our modern lives. Um, so a couple of weeks ago, I had a very specific um, way that I applied what I had studied in the weekly Sikha. It was talking about the mitzvah of peah. That is when we leave a corner of the field for the poor. So generally with tzedakah, we're told charity begins you know, at home. And that's from Torah teachings. We start with our family and we give the poor in our city, have priority over the poor in another city. You know, there's a hierarchy of how to give charity. But then when it comes to payah, when we leave the corner of our field, it's just, it's open to anyone. And no one so when we, anyone can take it. So when we're leaving this tzedakah, we're not even getting the benefit of helping our family first or choosing whom we want to help. I think that so many of us, we spend a lot of time thinking about where we want our tzedakah dollars to go. Yes. And Haya is just leave it there and it's up for grabs and anyone can take it. And the Rebbe talks about the greatness in that aspect of doing a mitzvah when we derive no personal benefit from it. And even when it's difficult, you know, even, even when it's something that kind of seems counterintuitive. Um, so yeah, a couple of weeks ago, I was hosting, it was the first Shabbat after semester ended and I was hosting dinner at my house rather than at Chabadas. Chabadas is kind of just like an open house, you know, anyone can come. And at my house, I was making a choice, kind of inviting some of the closer people, people who I know, you know, it's important to them to be at a Shabbat dinner. And there's one individual who, um, you know, she's my, she's my homework, as they say. She definitely triggers something in me to work on things that I need to work on. Um, not in, and so that wouldn't be my first choice as someone for a Shabbat dinner, but I knew that a couple of her friends were coming and that she would, you know, maybe find out and feel left out. And, you know, one part of me said, I, I don't have to, like, it's my Shabbat dinner and I can choose who I wanted to invite. And then I thought about that lesson in the Sikha and I like, took a deep breath and I sent her a message and invited her for Shabbat dinner. And I said, yeah, because we give tzedakah, not just when we can receive benefit from it. So, <laughs> right. Wow. And then I'm just curious, how did it go? Did, did she come first? Well, actually, no, she declined. <laughs> okay, okay. That week. And then the following week when I wasn't hosting and because my husband was away. Um, yeah, not every story ends well, <laughs> okay. but it was more, I think what it did for me it was yes. about how, how it responded to me. Yeah. So last week when I really... I invited five people, um, which is very unusual. You know, we always have a very large crowd, but like I said, my husband was away. I had a friend over with her kids and I didn't. And, and she sent me a very angry message that she wasn't invited. 
Um, so, and, and, and I'm sharing this because I think not every story has a fairy tale ending. And so it was my, but it doesn't take away from my avoda a couple right. of weeks ago 100%. that I overcame something in me to send her an invitation. Um, and then, yeah, she has her avoda to work on and, and, and I have mine in relation to her, <laughs> but, sure. um, at least two weeks ago, I, I, in the moment, I felt genuinely inspired by the mitzvah of payah to do that. That's so beautiful. And I love that. I love how you related that. And it was hard for you. It wasn't like, oh, yeah, come for Shabbos. I would love to have you, you really wouldn't didn't love to have her over, but you thought that this would be beneficial for her. You thought, you know, her friends were coming. You thought that this might be a nice thing to do. It wasn't something that came naturally to you, but you you were inspired by this mitzvah and you did it. And OK, she declined, but it was really it was more about you asking. It was asking her, you know, it was, it was more for you than for her, you know, yes, in the end. Absolutely. So, Cause a couple yes. weeks ago with the open style of my house, I think she would have come anyway, possibly. Yes, yes. Um, but I wanted to make sure that I put out the invitation. Very nice. Good for you. That's awesome. Very nice. Um, so the, the teachings that you shared are so important. They can have such a positive impact in our lives if we are able to internalize them and apply them. But the challenge is that we are so busy living our lives. We're going from place to place and trying so hard to get everything done that unfortunately Torah learning is often put on the back burner. And so what can you say to encourage more women just to take a tiny bit more time out of the day just to learn a little bit of Torah? Podcasts. I mean, honestly, <laughs> I think that it has transformed the way um, I think we all live, but it's, it's that ability you put in ear pods and while doing laundry and cooking and cleaning and driving carpool, um, get in. If it's a, if it's a 10 minute drive to carpool, then find that 10 minute Torah lesson. And if it's a longer drive and you can learn a whole Sicha, Mrs. Rifki Sladen, I know you had her as a guest. I, I listened yes. to her teaching the weekly Sicha, but that's definitely, I have an hour commute to um, take my kids to school to pick them up. Wow. So, um, yeah, just listen, listen, listen. And, and it's easier than ever to study Torah. I love them. You know, I totally agree. I also learn online. I listen to various Shireen from rabbis, from Rebbitsons. You can find them on TorahAnytime.com, on YouTube. And even this podcast, we have so many different Rebbitsons talking about so many different topics. And it, it really is a fun way to learn. And it's a very portable way to learn. You know, I listen, you know, when I'm doing when I'm doing the laundry, I take the laundry from downstairs, I bring it upstairs, my phone follows me. And it's just like ongoing in the car. You know, even when I'm taking a walk, I can listen to a sheer I can listen to some inspirational Torah so it's really very very true it's very easy these days so thank you thank you so much Rebbitz and Leah for joining us on America's Top Rebbitzins we really enjoyed having you with us and may all the learning we did today be for the Rafu Shalema for Eliezer Raphael Leib Benemuna and also for Ahuba Bat Sarah thank you so so much hey you're welcome